Well, this is part three in our series of attempting to answer the question, why must we assemble in person? Why should we go against the governing authority and offer God true, genuine, physical worship in person when live streaming and virtual worship is available? And the answer is because of the imperative commands in the New Testament We cannot genuinely obey these commands unless we assemble in person. Let's take one step back. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, a Christian is someone who flung away his allegiance to the world and he gladly devotes himself to Jesus Christ. The unbelievers of this world Their minds are blinded from beholding who Christ is. But once God opened our eyes, we were convicted with this truth that Jesus Christ is the precious pearl, that pearl of great price. He is the priceless hidden treasure in the field. He is the cornerstone of our salvation. Jesus is worth more than anything this world could offer. And how did our regenerated hearts respond to this great Savior, to this wonderful truth? We were willing to give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. We gladly follow him all the way, either to the cross or to the prison. And in the process, We are delighted that for Jesus' sake to deny ourselves, whether of good health or earthly riches, so that to be so near to his heart. A Christian is someone whose new hearts, who's got new desires, new affections towards Jesus Christ. And he feels most endangered when he's outside of prison while yet reluctantly obeying Christ and but at the same time feels safest even though imprisoned, yet wholeheartedly obeying Christ. Why? Because we know that our obedience from our heart to God's word is not optional to our fellowship with Jesus. No, on the contrary. Our obedience to God's word is the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And we know this. We know that Christians are not those who are saved by their obedience. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that. We know that it's only by the blood of Christ that we are saved. Jesus satisfied all that God demands for our salvation. But once we are saved, once we are justified, it is our heartfelt obedience to God's commands that brings us ever nearer to this fountain of our satisfaction. 
So why must we assemble in person? Because God commands us to do so. And the true followers of Jesus Christ will trample even upon their own fear of man in their obedience to God's command. Last week, we have seen that we assemble in order to examine our salvation. The very first step to loving one another demands this. And one would say, well, but why can't we love one another virtually? You know, through the screen or little mic and speakers. Answer, First John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Of course, we do need to use word. How else are we going to communicate? But if we're going to limit our love to only be with words, which what virtual interaction really is, then we are in defiance that is command. And the second reason that we must assemble in person because we're commanded by God to encourage the faint-hearted. This is a command. Objection? Well, why do we have to assemble to encourage the faint-hearted? Answer? Because that's exactly what the Word of God says clearly, explicitly. Hebrews 10, 25, the Word of God says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. In other words, God commands not just that we are to encourage one another, but He commands the means to this end, and that is assembling together in order to encourage one another. These are God's commands. Or for today, here's another objection. But doesn't the Bible also say that we've got to submit to the government? I mean, isn't this an imperative command? Yes, it is an imperative command. Well, well then, I'm, I'm going to defy all other direct and clear commands given to me by God, and I'm totally okay with that. Why? Because I'm going to submit to the government. Really? Do we really think that God intended for us to worship Him in this way? Do you really think that God gave us this command to submit to the government? as a green card to defy all his other commands? Well, for this, we need to turn to Romans 13. We're going to go after Romans 13 today. This will be the main text. We will go through various passages in the scripture, of course, but this will, will be the, the main, the base, if you like, for today's message. Romans 13. Now, most people have this tendency to attribute almost unlimited authority to the government, even over and above God's commands. So much that the government is no longer the minister of God, the servant of God, as you'll see in this passage, no, but as God replacement. 
And you know what? Just about every government in this world loves that. Governments love robbing God of his supreme authority. They love that. One needs to just scan the scripture and see the history, biblical history of what the governments are like from the very first reference of the government in the scripture all the way to the last government and just about every government in between. They're all corrupted at core. They're all craving the throne of God. From King Nemrod, who built the Tower of Babel, the stubborn pharaoh of Egypt who refused to submit to God's authority and let his people go. The ruthless king Nebuchadnezzar who crushed the people of God and the, and the temple of God. To the arrogant Nero who demanded to be worshipped as God. Even at the end times, the Antichrist who will rule and reign first over ten kingdoms all have one thing in common. And they're all summed up in Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, where it says, Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. What all governments have in common is that they're opposing God. Yes, for perhaps over 200 years, because Australia is founded upon Christian belief, we, we enjoyed worship of God, this, a certain degree of freedom of enjoying our God, just a breezer. But the principle still applies. Even our government, by and large, is, is under the ruler of this world. Most of the ministers that we have, if not all of them, are unbelievers. And what does Ephesians 2 say about those unbelievers? In verse 2 it says, in chapter 2 verse 2 it says, to they walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you put all these ministers together and what do you get? You get exactly the same thing except multiplied by the number of those ministers that are in, in that are leading this country. You know, at one stage, our nation unanimously agreed that the God of the Bible has supreme authority. But then what happened? The government came later. And in the name of anti-discrimination and in the name of freedom to worship, what did they say? They came and they said, oh, well, you've got the God of Islam, the God of Hindu, and now you've got the God of the Bible. They're all the same to us. We're not going to discriminate between any God over another. And in so doing, what did they do? They brought down the God of the Bible and they put him in the same level with all the other gods of all other religions. Well, he's no longer the supreme God. 
He no longer holds the supreme authority over this nation. Well, if that's the case, then who has the supreme authority? The government does. You see how cunning they are? They bring down the God of the Bible so that they will climb up into his throne. The government loves possessing supreme authority. And because it does, it tries in many ways to indoctrinate us to think and to act as though they have supreme authority. It wants us to believe that the government has a right even to regulate how we worship, where to worship, how many people worship, and even what not to say when we worship. This is the dream of just about every government in the world. And because of COVID, their, true, their dream has come true. The question is, is this what Romans 13 saying? Does Romans 13 say that the government has the right to redirect or regulate how we worship? Or stop us altogether from worshipping? Well, let me give you three reasons. The first reason why, even though the Bible commands us to submit to the government, we assemble in person, even if the government says no. The first reason is because it is God who has absolute authority, supreme authority, not the government. Let's read verses 1 and 2 first. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, again, unfortunately, many Christians, they bring their upbringing and what they wrongly assume the government role is, and they impose it into the scripture, and then they make this text to say what this, what this text is not saying. And their argument goes like this. Again. Um, doesn't the Bible say that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities? Yes, it does. Well, what are we arguing about? Just do what they say. Don't assemble in person until they tell you otherwise. Well, I want to be as clear as I possibly can be. And I want you to see how the government fits into the big picture and how the government authorities relate to God from these two verses. And so what I want to do is I want to even throw ourselves in the deep end. We'll give them the, the advantage. And I'm going to change the dialogue a little bit. Okay? 
So we're going to go as far as we possibly can and then exposit this passage and other passages. Let's say we're talking to a governor here. You know, a governor, one who's representing the governing authorities. What do you think he would say in the light of what we're speaking about? About our assembling together in person and about their authorities. What would he say? He would say something like this. He would say, listen, I'm not representing any particular religion here. There are many religions in this land and I'm trying to accommodate, accommodate them all. There is, there are Muslims, there are Hindus. In fact, there are other institutions that are not, uh, religious based and they're all impacted by this um, pandemic. I want to be fair to all of them. So my orders that I'm giving you, these orders apply to all. And your religious duties are not above the law. So don't assemble until I say so. Right? Wrong. Mr. Governor, this is where you're wrong, Mr. Governor. Let's read the text carefully. It says, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Mr. Governor, your authority is not man-made. It is not a clever idea that was made up in someone's garage and we thought, wow, that's great. Now we're going to hand you over this authority. That's not true. Your authority, Mr. Governor, is from God. It is established by God. And which God is it that has delegated this authority to you? Second Chronicles 20 verse 6, Jehoshaphat says, O Yahweh, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Again, First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth, yours is the dominion, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So, Mr. Governor, your authority is from God, and which God? The God of Islam, the God of Hindus, all the gods together. No, it's the God of the Bible. It's Yahweh. He's the one that delegated this authority to you. All other gods are false gods. They do not exist. They're a figment of people's imagination. It's the God of the Bible that delegated this authority to you. 
And because your authority, governor, is delegated from Yahweh, the God of the Bible, you're accountable to him. Let me read a few more texts. Psalm 47, 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Daniel 2.21, it is God who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes king. What about the kingdoms? What about the nations? God says in Isaiah 40, 40 verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scale. Brothers, sisters, we've got to lift up our eyes and be glad. It is our God that has unlimited, unrestricted, unchallenged, supreme authority, not the government. What we say to the governor is that, Mr. Governor, do you know what this means, that God is the one that has supreme authority? It means you're not autonomous. You're not running a show, independent. You're not sovereign, no matter how much you think you are. Your authority, Mr. Governor, is but a breath, a shadow. Your authority is a borrowed, short-lived, limited authority. And you're accountable to our God from whom you receive this authority. You are no more than a puny servant of God, answerable to him, and you are to lay down in the dust, submitting to God's unrestricted, unhindered authority. Now get this. This is the punchline now. You see, the very God whom you ought to submit to, is the same God who commanded his church in many ways and directly to assemble in person. And he gave you no warrant whatsoever to revoke his commands that he gave the church, whether there is pandemic or not. Who then is in defiance to God's commands? So Mr. Governor, you must tremble before our holy God, whose righteous anger is now kindled against you. You're abusing your authority. You're tearing apart the body of Christ. And we know that the church is the bride of Christ, right? And how much does Christ love his church? We look at the cross. He died for the church. He shed his blood. For his church. And Mr. Governor, you're obstructing the bride of Christ from beholding her bridegroom, and you will give an account to such atrocious crime. Jesus is our head. The church is the body of Christ, and he gave us, his church, these commands. These commands that we have been going through are given directly straight from the head to the body and God never intended for the government to be the neck 
Meaning, God didn't entrust these commands to the government and said to the government, you know what? Government, it's kind of up to you at your discretion whether my church obeys these commands or not. You know what? You decide. No. So what should we do, brothers, when the government defies God's commands? Should we take the side with the government against God? Do you know what this would be like? Let me tell you what this would be like. It would be like the fallen angels that took side when Satan defied God just because these angels were under Lucifer in that authorical hierarchy. Or it would be like the crowds at the time of Jesus when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, just because they were submitting to their official authorities. God forbid that we commit such wickedness. When God gives Pharaoh a command to let his people go, and Pharaoh says, no, I won't. Let us not be like a disobedient Israelite who uses Pharaoh's defiance as a green card to justify his disobedience to God's command and would stay in Egypt and wouldn't go. And you ask this disobedient Israelite, why wouldn't you go? Did not Yahweh command you to go? He would say, well, Pharaoh said, no, I won't. Shame on us if we disobey God just because our Pharaoh says, no, you don't worship. Whether the government defies God's authority or not, they are accountable. But we really, chiefly worship our God. Why? Because it is He who has supreme authority not the government. That's one. Number two, why is it that we assemble even though the scripture commands us to submit to the government? The second reason is the government has limited authority. That's the other side of the coin. If God is the one that has supreme authority, then what does that mean about the government? They've got limited authority. What does that mean? Well, let me bring it to you as a, in a form of another objection. So here we go. Someone is reading that verse in verse 1 and he says, Everyone is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Full stop. You've got full stop, right? And he says, well, look, there is no qualifier there. There is no condition. Is there to their jurisdiction, right? So doesn't that mean that God gave them unrestricted authority? I mean, they, they can mandate or abolish anything that they want at, at their discretion. We need to read the text. Now, please go back to Romans 13 if you're not there yet. And pay attention to the qualifier. There is a qualifier. In verse 3, it says, "For." And in saying for, God is about to give the government the jurisdiction. 
their confinement to their, the confinement of their authority. So read verses three and four here. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So what is the boundary that confines the restriction of the government's authority? What is it? Well, to, to borrow the words of First Peter 2.14, Peter here summarizes beautifully um, what the jurisdiction is in one verse, one sentence. First Peter 2.14. Turn there for a moment, but make sure we, we'll go back to Romans 13 later. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2.14 And Peter says, Or to governors as sent by him, and here is a jurisdiction, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. What is the jurisdiction? The punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Evildoers do right. What about what about our the economy? The superannuation? Centrelink. The punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. What, what about hospitals? The health system? Medicare? What about controlling the pandemic? Flattening the curve? We're not reading the text. We need to read the text. The punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Is that all? Surely it's got to be more than that. Well, other than that, the scripture says we're just going to have to pay tax only and insofar as and for the purpose of punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Come on. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Let me help you to settle it once and for all in our minds. Let's have a look at a, another sphere of authority that God has given us in the scripture in Hebrews 13. So the church authority, the elders' authority. So in Romans 13, it tells us about the governmental authorities. In Hebrews 13, it tells us in one verse, simple verse, the sphere of the church, where we have the elders' authority. Hebrews 13, verse 11. And we want to look at it side by side to Romans 13. Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Here's the jurisdiction. For they keep watch over your soul. 
It's a limited authority. It's not unlimited. It's limited. And what is it limited to? For they keep watch over your souls. This is our jurisdiction. Now, sure, we may uh, recommend to you um, other things in life, perhaps maybe whether to do homeschooling or not, uh, whether to live near uh, the church body or not. We can. There are many things that we can recommend to you, absolutely. But we cannot enforce anything outside of caring for your soul. Let me give you an example so you understand what, what, what I'm saying. Let's say it's your birthday, right? And your, your mother-in-law, um, I don't know if she, um, whether she would hate you or love you, but for whatever reason, she decides to give you a present. And this present is, uh, a fluffy green socks and, uh, Mickey Mouse printed on it, right? Now, let's say, uh, your wife, Obviously kind of likes it because it's from her mother and, and she says to you, uh, uh honey, I, I love these socks. You, you got to start wearing them. Yeah. You're all right. Well, okay. Fair enough. You're a humble, obedient man and you want to have peace in the house. So you decide to wear these socks, right? So you wear them and an elder comes into your house for a visit and lo and behold, he's staring at your green fluffy socks with Mickey Mouse on it. And he says, hey, Manny, sure you want to wear this thing? All right. I mean, it, it looks a bit daggy on you. Um, take him off. Now, would it be a sin if you say, no, I'm not taking him off? Would that be a sin? Well, I think obviously it would be a wise thing not to take them off. I mean, who would wear green socks fluffy and mickey mouse on him but it's not a sin right why is it not a sin does it not say in the scripture submit to your leaders why is it not a sin because it's got nothing to do with your soul in fact if this elder abuses his authority and keeps on giving you orders to take off your socks, it is the elder that would be sinning. Why? Because he's stepping outside of the God-given jurisdiction and he's usurping authority that God never delegated to him. But as for you, you're not sinning, are you? And on what ground do we say this? On the ground that in verse 17 it says, for they keep watch over your souls. And just like the authority of the elders is confined within taking care of your soul and no more, so also the authority of the government. It is confined within the boundaries of what? Punishing evil, praising those who do good and no more. If you want to be true to one, you've got to be true to the other. And if you're going to give unrestricted, unlimited authority to the government over you, so you must also give complete, unrestricted, unhindered authority over the elders. But we don't, do we? We don't. We shouldn't. Furthermore, please note, 
what the scripture says. Go back to Romans 13. You have to have done good or evil already for the government to exercise their legitimate authority. Let's have a look again. Pay attention to verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 says, Do what is good and you what? You will have praise from the same. In verse 4, it says, If you do what is evil, what do you do? Be afraid. Notice the cause and the effect. It is only when you do good, you will be rewarded. You ought to be. Of course, they don't, but you ought to be. And if only if you do evil, do evil, not think evil, not plan evil, but do evil, then get ready because you ought to be punished for it. None of these preemptive punishments where governments introduce endless of laws and then the government would punish you if you don't comply with their endless laws just to make sure you don't do evil. You know what this will be like? It will be like elders that say, you know what, we don't want anybody to commit adultery. And so what are we going to do? We're going to introduce laws where we're going to say, men, you are forbidden from communicating or speaking at all to women in the church. And in breaking this man-made law, then you get excommunicated from the church. How absurd. How crazy. We wouldn't accept that in any church, right? If the government punishes you, Before you commit evil, then biblically they're operating outside of their jurisdiction. And so because the government jurisdiction is confined within the boundaries of good and evil, we're not sinning when we assemble. How come? Because for the government to regulate our health, whether there is pandemic or not, is outside of their authority. You might say, ah, oh, but there are ad- many advantages if they regulate our authority. Perhaps there will be many advantages, and certainly there are many disadvantages, but I'm not talking about whether there are advantages or not. I'm actually talking about what does the Bible say? That can give us directions, recommendations, but to think that they have the right to impose it upon us as laws? That's not in the Bible. We assemble, even though the Bible does mandate that we submit to the government. Why? Because we recognize that God and God alone has supreme authority. He never delegated this supreme authority to the government. Number two, because when we assemble, that is not evil. That is not evil. They cannot mandate upon us what we do and we don't do because of health regulations. That is not in their jurisdiction. But number three, here is another objection. 
But the government said that it's evil to assemble, right? The government says it's good not to assemble. So isn't it technically under their jurisdiction then? Hmm? We assemble, number three, because it's good to assemble. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Who gets to define good and evil? Who? The government? If the standards of good and evil is set by the government, then who does God say that ought to be praised and who ought to be punished in our society? If the government is given the right to set the standards of good and evil, then guess what? Abortion must be good, right? And so therefore, all those murderers who murder their, slaughter their babies ought to be praised. And those who pray and evangelize to homosexuals are evil and they must be punished. Who gets to set the standards of right and wrong, good and evil? The government? The majority? God does. God who sets the standards. And then he delegates his authority to the government. Why? In order to enforce his standards that he already set. And since God is the one that gets to set the standards of good and evil, then guess what? Hebrews 10.25 is good. Where it says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, that's a good thing. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. These are good things. These are good things. Having the Lord's Supper together as a, as a community of believers in person. This is a good thing. Says who? Says God. Submitting to the elders, shepherding the flock, being hospitable to one another, loving the brethren, not just with words and, but with deeds. All of these are good things to do. And if we do them, you know what? We're meant to be praised by the government, not be punished by them. But because we live in this sinful, wicked world, in this government that prostituted itself to Satan, and they're doing the works of the devil, rather than punishing evildoers and praising those who do good, what are they doing? They're doing the exact opposite. Punish who do good and praise evildoers. Thanks be to God. It is our Jesus that has absolute authority, not the government. It is not the government that can say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Colossians 1.16 it says this about Christ. 
our Christ. For by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or what? Authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You know what this means? Governmental authorities are created by Christ. Not only are they created by Christ, they are created through Christ. Meaning, he's the one that dictates. He's the one that regulates the commands, what is good and evil. And they are created for Christ. To fulfill his purpose. Colossians 2.10 It says that Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. Meaning Jesus is the head of the government. Only Christ possesses a limited authority. And not only is he the head of the government, he's also the head of us, his body, the church. Again, a church is his bride. And no government has the right to stand between us and our bridegroom. Brothers, we are loved by God. We are so loved by God that when he purchased us with the precious blood of his son, he gave us his commands, the ones that we've spoken about, you know, to love biblically, to encourage genuinely, to assemble together all these commands and more. He didn't write them on some piece of paper in the law of land that is subjective and changes every season. No. He wrote them directly in the very fabric of our new hearts that he graciously gave us. These direct commands demand direct obedience. And yes, our government is doing the exact opposite of what God intended for them to do. And you see it. You see it all around us. Day by day, it's just continually increasing. Conversion therapy, legalizing abortion, safe school program, and now locking up churches. They are corrupt to the core. Brothers, if any among us that thinks that they genuinely want to protect us from a virus, or somehow they have our best interest in mind, please think again. That is not their intention. They would do anything to gain con more control and more power. And that's not different from the biblical theology of what governments are doing on earth. They would drive the economy to the ground if that's ne what is needed in order for them to gain control. Let's not forget. Let's not forget, brothers, sisters. Pharaoh drowned his army, the entire army, in order to gain control. Nero burnt all Rome to the, to rubble. Hitler, he destroyed Germany. They all want control. That's what unbelievers do, especially when you put them in this office of authority. Their hunger for control exponentially multiply. What does that mean? It means this. Let's be, let's be wise. 
Let's not put our hope in some government in this world. Let's put our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking forward for our Lord's return, who's going to be the greatest king that will ever live. Isaiah 9, verse 6, that'll be the last verse I'm going to refer to today. Second last verse, we'll see, depending on time. It says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now that's fulfilled. This is Jesus. But I love what it says afterwards. Look what it says. He now, Isaiah looks to the future and he says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This is the best government that we will enjoy. It says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Don't you love this? This will be our king, ultimately, physically, literally. First in the millennial kingdom and then for eternity to come in a new earth. Jesus Christ. He will be the right and proper and worthy king. Look, don't you love this? Look, look what it says about Jesus who loved us and will always and forever love us. Look at verse 7, what it says when he establishes his kingdom. I love this. I love it. It says in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. Wow. Beautiful. From then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Christ will be the supreme king. None of this corruption that is going on. None of this injustice. When you do right and you're scared that you might get punished for it. None of these things. Jesus said, yes, I'm coming quickly. And we respond and we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Well, I just want to give you a few of the common objections now in a lot of what we said, and I'll give you very quick answers. So we have them in our mind. We need to understand this. So these are the objections that I personally first-hand experienced when I heard from other people. Um, one person said to me, um, what do you mean that you obey God, you obey God's commands, even though the government forbids you to assemble? And the question goes like this, gave me an example. He said to me, oh, well, are you saying those are in prison? They ought to be free um, to break out of prison and assemble uh, because God commands them to assemble? Answer, well, if they have committed evil and they are punished for it and that's why they are in prison, then they've got to submit to the government's authority and do get, and get punished for the evil, um, crime that they have committed. Right? But if they are there 
because they are innocent and you're saying that they must stay in the prison and not leave the prison cell because the government commands them to stay and forbids them to assemble um, and therefore they have to stay, then you know what you're saying? You're saying that the angel who broke that cell and got Peter out of that cell because he's imprisoned unjustly, this angel is sinning, and so also this apostle Peter was also sinning since he left the cell against the government's authority. No, neither Peter nor the angel that released him was sinning. Now someone else said to me, ah, but we're not persecuted, right? I don't know if you heard this before. We're not persecuted. If, if we are persecuted, then yes, we will defy the government. What do we say? Well, are we only going to obey God when we're persecuted? But what you're saying is when we are not persecuted, it's okay to defy God's commands? That doesn't make sense, does it? And someone else said, well, you do realize that you might get jailed for what you're doing. Are you sure that you want to do this? I mean, John MacArthur uh, and, and the rest of, of these kind of people, they've got teams of lawyers, not just one lawyer. And they've got their constitution behind their back. They can get themselves off the hook. But you won't. What do you say to this? Are you saying that if I have team of lawyers and the right proper constitution, then I should obey God's commands. But if I don't have team of lawyers or the constitution to support me, then it's okay for me to defy God's commands. Is that what you're saying? That doesn't make sense. Brothers, if, if God wants to throw us into the lion's den and three days later, whatever, or a day later, he would spare our lives like he did with Daniel, praise be to God. But if God would choose in his sovereignty to throw us into the Colosseum, such that, that our bodies would be served as breakfast for these lions and the beasts, it is God's will. All that we could do is be faithful to God's commands. What do we say to all of these things? Acts 5.29 says it very clearly. Peter says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Full stop. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, here we are, Lord, obeying your commands. We want to obey from our hearts and how we desire, Lord, to obey them freely and cheerfully. We pray, Father, as we are obeying your commands, please bring clarity to our minds that our conscience is clear, that even though the authority goes against your will, that we know where to stand and how to stand firm our ground to serve you, Lord, wholeheartedly, even if we are in prison, knowing, Lord, that our reward 
is from your hand is so much better, so much greater than to be indefined to your command just to please man. Teach our hearts, Lord, to please you more than, more importantly, to please man. It's so much sweeter life, so much better life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.